so you got COVID first. Hi. And <laughs> and then and then the house got COVID. Yeah. And then you were like, no, 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 wait, I got this. I'm gonna come in like a superhero and save the podcast. I'm cause the problem and then be the solution. <laughs> No, no, that's not what I meant. Oh, no. It's a really good way to uh, make sure there's always a market for you available for work. <laughs> Jamie is capitalism. I am here to mess things up and then set it back as if it never happened. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, hi, everyone. Uh, so yes, what happens? We went to New York City, had an amazing time. It was a super great trip. But I did bring back an unwanted friend, which was COVID, and I got sick for a couple days. We thought Tracy was out of the woods, that she hadn't caught it, but she did, unfortunately, come down with COVID a few days ago. Uh, Yeah, in case anyone's not recognizing the different voice, uh, today my co-star, I'm going to say (laughs) co-star, is Jamie. This is Tracy's twin, who is like our resident expert on art art history and both designed our logo and all of our amazing merch yeah like we come to you and we're like jamie we have this loose barely an idea um and you put it together and like custom design us fonts oh i can't it's it's a great time you guys have the most fun merch to work on and it really makes my uh art school debt feel worth it for a (laughs) bit it's like oh there is a reason i did this I'm going to make your art school debt feel really worth it today. I am so – yeah, we're, we're going to get into it. So basically what went down is Tracy had COVID. We still have a podcasting schedule. We were figuring it out. And Jamie just pops up like a quest giver in a video game. I don't know. And It's dangerous to go alone. Take this. This podcast script that I wrote. Yeah. Jamie put together an entire – script on michelangelo how much of this was from memory like how much of it was stuff that you knew and then just had to confirm with a source oh yeah for sure for sure for sure um yeah no so there i would say it was a good amount was from memory like i heard this random story a professor told me and i'm pretty sure it's true let's just take a second and double check that uh, but I also did learn a lot that I hadn't known before. Um, I was reading this was inspired because I was reading a book called the agony and the ecstasy which is a very famous uh, historical novelization of Michelangelo's life, uh, which is also the only reason I know how to pronounce like any of the names in this story is because I was listening to the audiobook version. <laughs> but it got me very interested in this. So I'm very excited to talk about our topic today. The Agony and the Ecstasy. That's a good name for a book about your life. It's really good. It's very strong. I would love to have an autobiography with like half as cool a title. Oh, oh, shoot. Wait, we should do the proper intro. Okay, oh. I'm going to use this. Okay. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall, and I'm the ecstasy. The the Yeah, I'm doing that one. Hi, I'm Jamie Harrison. I'm absolutely the agony. Just <laughs> embodying it these last few weeks. And this is the Willing and Fable podcast, where we bring you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So, if you'd like to support our podcast, consider ordering some of that very cool merch we were just talking about. Jamie is the brains and the artist behind it. My personal favorite is the We Get It Your Goth design. I love that one. 
you were so tolerant going back and forth and me sending you pictures of very old Ouija boards. <laughs> uh, the drink whiskey and rant about history is also a fave. Oh, that's a really fun one. Oh, one of my favorites, just the tell me something good. I got to draw a picture of Lola with um, a third eye. Like, what, what more do you want? Why else do you get an art degree? <laughs> I like that it's just a little button. It's just a little, um, it's just a little button. Just a little something good. So if you want to know what the heck we're talking about, go over to willingandfable.com. Uh, and you – oh, do you want to do the Patreon <gasps> thing? I would love to. I would be honored. You can also support the podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable or telling your coolest cousin about our show. Or you can cosplay as your favorite character and send us a photo of you doing the silliest things you can imagine that character doing. It's just the sort of serotonin boost we could all use right now. But no matter what you do, we're glad you joined us today. So I know we kind of just did this loosey-goosey intro because, like, I'm too used to hanging out with you. <laughs> but could you, like, properly, like, I don't know, introduce yourself? Like, yeah. say say who you are. What's your What's your rising sign? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I'm Jamie Harrison. I am an illustrator, graphic designer, uh, crafter, cosplayer hoarder of crafts and activities i'm a leo i don't know what my rising sign is but i know i'm a leo i don't know how many points that gets me or subtracts but you know definitely at least one whole point yeah oh, well two because you then also revealed that tracy's a leo i did <gasps> lore drop <laughs> <laughs> and you've been like the resident artist of everyone we know since yeah the ancient history of us knowing each other you have always been the friend that had the really cool sketchbook <laughs> and was drawing not just doodling but drawing in class yeah um which is so funny i did recently find some old art from at least i, I can't remember if it was high school definitely like early college and it is really funny to look back because I thought I was so good I thought it was so strong and then you look back and it's like oh boy howdy that's a something different i have a picture you did of me from high school I'm so on sorry lined about that. notebook paper but it's cool because <laughs> you were in this really like tim burton style mm -hmm. and i it looked like a character design i love it i love it i refuse to judge your old work because <laughs> that's how you ended up here it's true i try i try to be kind to my my myself you, you if you're not looking back at work from a few years ago and thinking it could be better you're not necessarily improving but also why can't things just be done for fun and also why does it always have to be exactly like i made bad ceramics and i'm not trying to make my ceramics any better i just enjoying the process of making it that's how i feel about drawing like yeah. my drawing skills are not up to snuff but boy is it relaxing it's fun just to color in sometimes yeah and i i always knew that you were a like an official proper artist capital a because mm -hmm. in your spare time you would do those freaking like apple shading where you have to shade the sphere of the apple correctly based <laughs> on the light source like you would do that for fun and that's the worst yeah art class activity oh my gosh that was my entire second semester my freshman year my first semester <laughs> i always laugh because my first semester was all black and white like we did not work in color and my second semester was color we, we finally we learned about color <laughs> six months into my art school freshman year training <laughs> Um, so I used to do those kind of activities as warm-ups and things, but, uh, when you do it for an entire year straight, it loses some of the shine. 
My mom told me when she was in art school, my mom was a watercolor major. That's amazing. Can you imagine? <laughs> uh, she had to do, I think it was an entire year left-handed and she's <sighs> right-handed. So you had to flip your dominant hand and figure it out. I could never. It could never. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, I didn't have to do – I had a year that was like my foundational year and that was um, three – literally the class was like 3D design, 2D design and drawing I think were like the names of the classes. So uh, very foundational. And then my I went into my major which was illustration and I had the same professors for a full year. I took like anatomy for a full year and then I had portfolio classes and things like that. But I, I have a degree in taking criticism is really what I – Yo, girl, same. It's come down to. Like, I have a degree in saying, like, thank you so much for that feedback. I appreciate that so much. Actually, that's one of the reasons I love collaborating with you so much because I went to theater school, which is the same thing. Yeah. I have a degree mm-hmm. in taking criticism. You you do your work and then you stand up there with everybody looking at you, yeah. with your teacher critiquing you. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I – uh, because of that, I don't take criticism personally. I feel nothing. Right. I have a language for communicating mm-hmm. notes. And when I talk to you, it's, oh, my God, it's like my – I'm so relaxed because I know <laughs> that I'm going to say, oh, can we do a darker shade of blue? And you're not going to be like, that shade of blue represented my whole soul. It was just like a really important decision I made when I was thinking of it. No, I'm like, I have absolutely no emotional attachment to this piece anymore whatsoever. (laughs) If you want to make it hot pink, let's go for it. I feel nothing. (laughs) Oh, actually, while we're talking about all your creative endeavors, this is the perfect moment to transition into our very cool sponsor of the podcast. Um. You all know, if you've been listening for a moment, that Leah from Greenleaf Geek has been a longtime sponsor of Willing and Fable. She creates custom handmade resin dice. Greenleaf Geek stocks everything you could ever possibly need for your nerdy, tabletop, geeky adventures. And Tracy and I have been talking nonstop about this all-girls campaign that we've been in where we use our Greenleaf Geek dice. And hey, guess what? The DM of that campaign is Jamie. It's me! (laughs) And I don't get to play in person. I play virtually, but Tracy tells me that the like she just pours out all her dice on the table, and Mm -hmm. it's like a whole thing. It's a free-for-all. Yeah, we're all reaching for those dice. Yeah, I. uh, one of my favorite things about playing in person is like – just sharing the math rocks, getting geeky about the minis, like doing all the little extra like toy things about it. <laughs> so I'm I'm hoping I can get in the room with you all soon. Also, no, no, they won't listen to the podcast. Okay, so I have a plan to get our like newbie players who don't have an insane amount of dice, like a bunch of dice from Greenleaf yeah, Geek for I the holidays. That too. I would right? I would be a part of that. I'm in. Sign okay, we're up. gonna we're doing matching um, rolling mats and dice sets. For <gasps> yes, that. yes. Oh, I love it. Okay, okay, okay. Cool, cool. So that's our that's our holiday plan. Anyway, we're gonna be shopping at Greenleaf Geek. So if you'd like handmade dice for your character campaign or based on your long held dice dreams, Leah's commissions are open. Or if you'd like a set of her curated dice instead, you can head over to greenleafgeek.com and check out at greenleafgeek on Twitter and Instagram to see awesome examples of leah's artistry she makes some amazing dice her feed is mm, it's mm. satisfying it's so aesthetic i love it don't forget to use our code fable that's f-a-b-l-e for 10 percent off your order some restrictions apply all right insider baseball when we write these scripts up i'm always read text 
uh, if I need to know I'm talking, and Tracy's always blue. And Jamie just came in hot, color-coding the whole script in this particular shade of yellow that I think of as Jamie Harrison yellow. I love it. Like a goldenrod mustard yellow. Ugh. I love it. 100%. Fun fact, I went back to the office for the first time um, and I met someone I had worked with that I hadn't seen in person in like two and a half years. And I was wearing a yellow golden rod blazer. And the first thing she says to me, just, is that your favorite color? And I was like, yeah, it is. Actually, I love this color. She's like, I feel like I see you with that color all the time. I was like, we haven't even seen each other in person. And I'm still getting associated with this color. I love it. It's my favorite color. But yes. I would not necessarily say you wear it all the time, but I would say you wear it frequently, but you carry it off better than most. Thank you. I think I just decided one day that like it it was my color and like I the world would have to fight me on that choice. Like I was not (laughs) gonna hear anything else. So I just wore it. It's like we use it. There's a chair in the living room that's a bright yellow. Like any I have shoes that are bright yellow, any chance I can to get it uh, to sneak it in there. All right. You ready to talk about today's topic? I am ready to talk about today's topic. So I don't think we've said what the topic is yet. So I am going to be telling you all about Michelangelo Buonarroti and the Statue of David. I am so ready. (laughs) So I'm so excited to talk about this. Tracy and I are actually, fingers crossed, going to Florence uh, in October, and we're going to try to see the statue. It's been something I've obviously admired for a long time, uh, but there's such a deep, interesting history to the statue itself. So David, the statue of David, famous world over. It is a beautiful, poetic work, and even in its time of creation was considered a masterpiece. The subject of David is almost a prophetic choice, which you'll see why as we start looking at the history of the creation of this statue. So David and Goliath, It's a story in the book of Samuel that tells the tale of young Jewish David defeating the Philistine giant Goliath. Wait, I'm sorry. Hold on. David and the sculpture is based off of a very famous story. I just thought it was some hot guy named David. Wait, are you serious? (laughs) Yes. I never thought it through. I was like, oh, look, it's young, hot abs man, David. I just... just... That is so funny. They were like the Duomo, like the the Fran- the Florentine cathedral was just like, I would love a hot guy. I just I think our church is missing a hot guy. You, I've never, ever <laughs> thought about it. It was just Statue of David. His name is David. That's shameful. I have a mythology podcast. <laughs> I don't even want to tell you anything else. I just want to leave you with that piece of information and be like, I've done something good today. I honestly just thought Michelangelo was like, mm, yeah, oh, and then- um, No, so it's based on David and Goliath. <laughs> um, so the Academia, which is the museum that currently houses the Statue of David, summarizes the story of David like this. So it is the account of the battle between David and Goliath as told in Book 1 of Samuel. Saul and the Israelites are facing the Philistines near the Valley of Elah. Twice a day for 40 days, Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, comes out between the lines and challenges the Israelites to send out a champion of their own to decide the outcome in single combat. Only David, a young shepherd, accepts the challenge. Saul reluctantly agrees and offers his armor, which David declines, since it is too large, taking only his sling and five stones from a brook. David and Goliath thus confront each other, Goliath with his armor and shield, 
David armed only with his rock, his sling, his faith in God, and his courage. David hurls a stone from his sling with all his might and hits Goliath in the center of his forehead. Goliath falls on his face to the ground, and David then cuts off his head. End quote. It feels like not enough stones. <laughs> That's your criticism? It's not a criticism. It's just, you know, most assuredly he could have yeah. woes one more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess if you're going against it. There are conflicting accounts of uh, Goliath's size. There's anywhere from 6'9 to 9 feet, depending on the source or interpretation or translation. But yeah, I feel like five stones, you could do a little bit more than that. Listen, he's not going to roll dirty 20s on every single stone. You got to have a couple spares. <laughs> you got to have a backup. <laughs> Uh, so we also colloquially use the phrase to mean an underdog situation where a smaller, weaker opponent faces a much stronger adversary. If successful, the underdog may win in an unusual or surprising way. So it's about surpassing seemingly insurmountable odds. Keep that theme in mind as we talk about the history and evolution of this statue, because you'll see this. The statue itself is so effortlessly magnificent, but it had a pretty turbulent path to creation. Okay. So let's start back around the 1400s, about 75 years before Michelangelo was born. The overseer of the Office of the Works of the Duomo, also known as the Operai, commissioned a new installation for the Duomo. Okay. I did put a note here to myself that says, quick rant about Brunelleschi finishing the dome of the Duomo if it feels right, which it almost always feels right to rant about. So I am <laughs> I am good. I have no joke unprompted ranted about this multiple times to people in my life i don't know why this one particular story is so interesting to me but when the duomo was being constructed they wanted this big dome but domes are difficult to build and they hadn't been built in a long time especially in florence there's some other examples of it having been built in other places like the hagia sophia in uh constantinople the duomo was under construction, but nobody could figure out how to finish this dome. So it sat unfinished for like decades, like this beautiful cathedral in Florence, which just opened because nobody could figure out how to complete the dome. Uh, so he was commissioned to finish the dome. And he was revolutionary at the time for not letting his men drink while on the work site. Like, oh, because <laughs> they would have to be pulled up on uh, pulleys up to the top and work. And he was like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be drinking beer nonstop day and night and wine nonstop day and night. And he was uh, famous for not having a ton of accidents on his site. Yeah, OSHA wasn't around yet. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so he was able to complete the dome and was um, like revered and, and everyone was excited. But I just I love Brunelleschi as like, I, I can't say character because he's a human being who like lived and was a person, but also well, yeah, but the character and the human are two very different things. He came back to Florence to do the Duomo. The reason he left is there was a contest to design the doors of the baptistry. And he was like, I have the most amazing design. I have the most phenomenal entry. I'm absolutely going to win this contest. And then they awarded the contract to somebody else. And he threw such a hissy fit that he left Florence for like 10 years and was like, I'm done. I'm done with this city. They don't appreciate me. And then told the Duomo needed to be finished. And then he came back and did it. I love these men from afar. <laughs> Absolutely. From afar, from across the ocean and also 600 years ago. Yeah. If I had to know those men, I would I would be miserable. Exhausting. Uh, but I do love hearing about his high renaissance dramatic antics. <laughs> that part's fun. So, and that is the Duomo. 
the Florentine Cathedral was supposed to have dozens of Old Testament prophet statues lining the roof on the east side of the cathedral. At a great expense to the city, a block of marble was quarried for this project. Augustino Di Duccio, a former student of Donatello's, was commissioned to sculpt that piece of stone that they had commissioned to be quarried. So beginning with true underdog David style, issues began as soon as the stone was cut. Diduccio was not an expert in marble or marble cutting and overlooked many flaws in the stone right from the start. The size of the marble they harvested was enormous. It was around 18 feet tall or about five and a half meters and weighed 25,000 pounds, which is roughly 11,340 kilograms. So it started as Goliath and then became David. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> See, now that I know this fact, look at how much I can do with it. <laughs> but it wasn't since Rome, some like 1,000 years earlier, that a block stone this large had been quarried. So transportation was also an is issue. Sam Anderson puts it wonderfully. He has an article called David's Ankles, which is a title that will make sense soon. Mm -hmm. So to quote him, the whole process was one ordeal after another. Because statuary marble tends to form up near the top of mountains, it took months of labor to get it down to the quarry floor. The trip from Carrera to Florence, an 80-mile journey that takes around two hours in a modern car, took two more arduous years. There were teams of men, teams of oxen, big ocean ships, flat river barges, inclement weather, month-long delays, and at one point the giant block fell into a muddy ditch and had to be laboriously extracted. End quote. Two years! A trip that takes about two hours in modern day in a car. Yeah, it took two years to get this rock just from the top where it was quarried down to uh, where it needed to go. That's about one year and eight months too many. <laughs> it was a lot. Uh, but it, troubles didn't end there because when the block of marble finally arrived, problems, even more problems became apparent. So the block had been roughed out at the quarry site, which means that the stone was chipped away to rough out the shape of the eventual statue so that the least amount of stone would need to be transported. Upon inspection in Florence, however, issues in the stone came to light. So the marble had veins and holes in it. The block was cut narrowly, like probably too narrow. Uh, Augustino had made the block even narrower when he was roughing out the form. He put a hole right in the middle of the block, supposedly where in between like where the two legs would be. Uh, he whittled out some of the legs, torso, and some of the drapery before he eventually gave up. Uh, it was clear he wasn't right for the project, and he was actually fired from the project. A lot of people feared the investment into that stone was wasted, because again, this was really expensive, really time, labor-intensive to get this stone here, and people were convinced it was just ruined and didn't think a figure could be made from it. Uh, the block sat unused, uncovered facing the elements in the courtyard of the Duomo for about 10 years until another student of Donatello's attempted to create something from it. 10 years. That's about mm -hmm. eight years and eight months too long. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, nobody knew what to do with it. It was just this enormous piece of stone that just was everyone was like, it's, it's ruined. We can't do anything with this. I have a hard enough time imagining building up a shape in three dimensions, like working mm -hmm. with clay. Yeah. But trying to imagine carving something out is brain boggling for me. 
Right, because it's subtractive. Like you can't once it's gone, it's gone. You can't with clay. You can always add more back on or build up. With uh-huh. uh, marble, it's subtractive. So once you take it away, it's gone. Have you ever worked in stone or marble? No, I have not. I did. Uh, my in my freshman year when I was in that three D design class, we had a assignment where we had to carve uh, out of marble. So we went to the zoo. We looked at the animals. We had to pick an animal and then try to carve it in marble. Uh, and I carved the most uh, rotund pigeon you've ever seen. It like barely <laughs> looks like a pigeon. It has like a slight lump on the top for the head and then like a long blob for the body. But it was really cool. I had to use a drill. I had to chisel. I had to sand it and smooth it. It was it was cool. It's hard. Marble is not easy to work with. I've always wanted to carve something out of soapstone because soapstone is so easy to work with. Yeah. And I'm not carving it to survive churchyards for 10 years. (laughs) Just to mess around. But I've just – my brain does not work subtractively as well as it does additively. Yeah. I I agree. I'm the same way. I mean, mine doesn't work in 3D as well as it does in 2D, which is why we are both uh, 2D artists and not 3D artists. (laughs) Although your mom does some amazing 3D work. My mom is – it's insanely talented. She uh, keeps winning. Uh, yes. She keeps texting me like, oh, I just won an award. And she's <laughs> way more casual about it than I want to be. Like, <laughs> I would not. If I won as many awards as your mom did, I would not be cool about it. No, absolutely And your mom not. is so kind and chill and, like, humble and willing <laughs> to share everything she knows and work with people. Like, you are so good. And you are so nice. And you win so many awards. I know. I feel like if like someone else who knew as many tricks as my mom does, like material tricks, mm-hmm. I don't think would share them. And every other week or something, she's teaching a class. Yeah. And I think I would turn into Gollum. I'd be like hoarding <laughs> my knowledge. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. But yes. So uh, Livia's dresses states in the Mental Floss article, Michelangelo's David on the Duomo roof. Quote, daunted by Agostino's previous work and the many imperfections in the marble block that might prove fatal to the structure of so large a statue, Rossellino, that's the artist who was commissioned second to try to carve this block, Mm. Rossellino couldn't hack it either. So the huge block of marble just sat in the yard of the cathedral workshop exposed to the elements for another 25 years. End quote. That's about (laughs) 23 years and eight months too many. (laughs) No work should take more than a year and four months, according to Rowan. That is her timetable. <laughs> that is her time frame. If it's more than 16 months, it's too long. <laughs> it's arbitrary. Here we go. <laughs> so 1501 is when our boy Michelangelo Buonarroti enters the scene. At 26 years old, he was already seen as a master in his time. He was well-loved, well-known, and well-paid for his work. He had just previously completed the Pieta. Oh, my God. Getting well-paid as an artist in your lifetime. Yes. Doing it all at 26. What? I know. He was, like, a rock star in the time. Like, he was <laughs> famous and well-loved. Was that a marble joke? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm more upset that I made it or that I missed it. <laughs> I guess it can be both. So he was a rock star. He was a he was yeah like literally like a rock star like the equivalent of I, why did I want to say Bono why was that where my mind went I was like he was equivalent to a rock star in our time like Bono or Kiss the only two rock stars who came to my brain uh 
I was thinking Banksy because that's like one of those household names that even people who like don't yeah. care about art know. <laughs> but Michelangelo also wasn't a mystery person. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was very uh he he was kind of like a, a not a recluse, but he was very solitary. Well, okay. We'll talk about that. Okay. But he had previously just completed the Pietà, which if you haven't seen it is achingly beautiful. It is stunning. Um again, this is so this is a story I don't have any source for besides that like one time an art history professor told it to me and it's always stuck with me. Okay. But apparently when he was commissioned to sculpt the Pietà, the person who commissioned him was like, I want the most beautiful sculpture in all of Italy. Like, I, all I want is just the most stunning, beautiful sculpture. And Michelangelo was like, got it. And then he worked and presented the Pietà. And the guy was like, you did it. This is the most beautiful statue in Italy. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you, you, you nailed my parameters of make the most beautiful thing that's ever existed. That's awesome. I've seen the Pietà. I... <gasps> Was traveling uh, with an ex at the time, or well, now ex, and um, I had a very bad fever. And this was before COVID, like when mm -hmm. if you had a cold, you just had to deal with it. Yeah. Um, I had such a bad fever. And I was – the crowds are so bad there. Uh, the So many tourists. And I was like, mm -hmm. I am trying to have a religious experience with this sculpture. <laughs> I think I have 102 fever. Like this is just not – happening for me meanwhile yeah. i think a woman next to me was crying i would like, not be surprised to hear that yeah wow <laughs> <laughs> um yeah you're, when you're looking at it, you're like am i feeling something amazing because of the art or am i having a fever dream and my touch to reality is loosening oh 100 <laughs> why not both um that's good that so that's that story always sticks out to my mind every time I look at the Pietà. I'm like he did. It's the most beautiful statue. It's amazing. Uh, so this was about a year or two after he completed the Pietà. So he was officially commissioned by the Operai, beating out other potential artists, including his famous rival Leonardo da Vinci, who notoriously had contempt for sculpture. Da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Raphael were notoriously rivals in their age. Donatello came before, so the, the fourth turtle was uh not involved in the rivalry i was just gonna say how many people were listing off the teenage mutant ninja turtles <laughs> the other day tracy and i were trying to remember all four ninja turtles and it was so funny because so many times she kept being like no i know all four it's michelangelo leonardo da vinci and Raphael." i'm like nope um she said it so many times i was like you are counting leonardo and da vinci as two separate ninja turtles and that is so wrong <laughs> Like, she so confidently was hitting it off on her fingers each time. Like, I got four. <laughs> She's not a turtle. <laughs> is this the kind of heated sisterly debate we need? Oh, my God. Here is Like, it went on longer than you'd expect, too. Like, we really worked on it. I sense um, it went on the exact amount of time I expect. No, <laughs> you do. <laughs> not wrong there. But so Michelangelo was commissioned and he worked for over two years on a block of marble. Uh, the block was so big, it actually became known to locals as the giant. <laughs> uh, and he worked on privacy. But again, success was not guaranteed. Like Michelangelo said, like, I'll step up and try. But nobody expected him to be able to carve this into a figure. Um, part of the reason is marble is best carved when it is cut fresh. So like when it sits out, it becomes more brittle. And this thing had been sitting out in the elements for 35 years. So people really didn't think there was going to be anything 
that could be done from this marble, not just because it had been sitting out and was becoming brittle, but it was, again, cut weird. It Multiple artists had tried. So he wasn't working. He was working against all these elements. He had a really big uphill climb. So Michelangelo worked tirelessly in a private roofless shed that he just built right around the stone. <laughs> he was like, yeah, just put it away. Uh, and he worked in complete secrecy. He worked in all weathers. He was devoted to creating this statue. So rain, snow, wind. It Reportedly, the quote was something – I read something when I was researching. Like, if it rained, he worked wet. Like, he would just continually work notorious for not stopping to sleep, not stopping to eat. He would sleep in his clothes and his boots. And after working tirelessly for two years, he was finally ready to reveal the statue came in at 14 feet, about 4.3 meters when it was finished in its creation, and that was in 1504. It was an immediate success. People were amazed at this statue as soon as he showed it. There was a Renaissance art historian, Giorgio Vasari, who said, and truly it was a miracle on the part of Michelangelo to restore to life a thing that was dead. Anyone who has seen Michelangelo's David has no need to see anything else by another sculptor, living or dead. Oof. Nice. So if I'm correct, it took him two years to do it. Yes. So actually, four months, too many. He was so close. He <laughs> just missed that deadline. <laughs> Unfortunately, he didn't have the foresight to know 16 months is the only acceptable time frame. <laughs> Putting up a shelf? Give me 16 months. Building the Statue of David? I need 16 months to get that done. Michelangelo would absolutely murder me if he could <laughs> if come to the patron. future. Just... <laughs> So when the work was shown, an unexpected question arose. Should the statue still be placed high on top of the Duomo? Or was this work too precious for that? So they actually convened a committee of about 30 members, including artists Leonardo da Vinci, Sandro Botticelli, and Giuliano di Sangallo, to decide on an appropriate site for David. So during this long debate, about nine different locations for the statue were discussed, and eventually, the statue was placed in the political heart of Florence in the Piazza della Signoria. It took 40 men four days to move the statue the half mile to its final location. And it would stay there for the next 369 years outdoors. We are measuring in amounts of time with this sculpture that boggles my brain. Yeah. Like, even though... You know, I've read the little placards that you read about it. Like, eh, it mm -hmm. was built in this year and it now is 2000, whatever. <laughs> but, like, measuring in 369 years, just hanging out outside. Yeah. And knowing what goes into its preservation now. It's crazy to think about. It's like, it's, it makes me, like, ugh, like cringe a little bit just knowing. And we'll talk about it because it didn't. Again, speaking to the story of David and Goliath and this overcoming obstacles, it did not come out unscathed during that 369 years for a multitude of reasons. Okay. But one thing that's cool um, is when it was placed in the Piazza della Signoria, David was facing Rome and became a symbol of defiance for the city of Florence. <laughs> so at the time, Rome and uh, the Vatican were the seat of the Medici family. And Florence was trying to show its independence and stay separate. So they have David facing Rome to, again, sort of say, like, if he's fighting Goliath, the Goliath he's looking at is Rome and the Medicis. And we, Florence, as David, are fighting and we're going to win. That's cool. Yeah. 
So part two of why David was so impactful was apart from his enormous size and the obvious stunning technical craftsmanship, the piece is actually revolutionary right from its conception. So Michelangelo shows David in this statue right before battle. This is a moment that hadn't really ever been captured by an artist before. The traditional way to show David was always at the moment of victory, either slaying Goliath or, more common, holding his severed head. So Donatello created just such a David when he was commissioned by Cosimo de' Medici about 60 years prior to, to Michelangelo's creation of David. Donatello's David is slender, he's cast in bronze, he's a nude figure, and he's shown uh, holding a sword standing atop the head of the slain Philistine giant Goliath. Okay, these are so different. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to start with David by Michelangelo, because he's our main guy, and he's yeah, not yeah. just hot regular David, he's David slaying Goliath. <laughs> he's um, not he's not your typical average hot david he's a, <laughs> he's a biblical hot david <laughs> but just to be clear he is a hot david he, like yeah no matter what we can't lose sight of the important bottom line that he is always hot david he's got so many abs and yeah. it's basically just michelangelo really went in and was showing off he kind of was showing off his knowledge of anatomy like oh for I, sure who know very little about anatomy personally can't speak to its actual accuracy. But as a lay person, mm -hmm. I look and I say like, oh, this this sculptor knows how to actually put muscles and bone in marble. Definitely. And we will talk about that. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's just massive. And he's – his hands look disproportionately large. Oh, now. we'll I'm talk so about it. Nice. Okay. That's so funny. You were, okay. kind of, you were picking you, – I shouldn't be I shouldn't be quietly clapping to myself into the mic, but it was just a natural reaction because you are hitting on it that, yes, we will talk about that. For how large his hands are, I will say his legs look a little scrawny, and I did just call him Hot David. So I'm going <laughs> to – I'm going to – to not judge this man, he's holding one hand up with presumably the rocks. So actually, the rock is in his um, – his right hand, the one that's oh, down. Oh, okay. And his left hand is holding the sling pouch. Oh, got it, got it. And he's looking like if, I just watched a documentary about Abercrombie, so I think that's why it's on the brain. But he's doing kind of like an, a model vintage Abercrombie pose more mm -hmm. than he's doing a like I'm about to fight and potentially die pose. Mm -hmm. Which is, again, very different. You always see these heroes, these figures in their relaxed moment of victory. And this David is gearing up for a fight. And it is interesting that he looks so calm. It's a very intentional juxtaposition of the tense moment before battle where some of his muscles are really taut. But the contrapposto stance, which is where you have um, your balance, means counterbalance, I believe, or counterpose. Which so you have your weight on one leg and it causes your body to sit, uh, sorry, to stand at an angle. So your shoulders and your hips are aligned in opposite angles. Uh, very naturalistic pose, but it's a it's a relaxed pose. So it is this juxtaposition of the tense moment before battle with more of a relaxed stance. Yeah, he is engaging those upper abs, but he would have the lower V no matter what. I think yeah. is the deal. But then we have Donatello's David in bronze mm -hmm. and. Is this as little as it looks in the picture? It's a small. I didn't look up the size. I think it's about 
Well, compared to the Statue of David, I'm sure it's... Yeah, I, I, th- I want to say it was with bronze um, and cast. I want to say it's about like three feet or so. Okay. Truly, truly my memory of the size of it, my reference that I'm getting it is because I watched the really bad Netflix Medici TV show starring um, Rob Snow from Game yeah, of Thrones. It yeah. It was not good. But uh, they have the Statue of David in there. And I think it was moderately sized, like three or four feet. So he looks like he has brazers on his legs, but... And he's got quite the interesting hat. Um, and I don't know what it's supposed to look like, but right now it looks like a sun hat. Yeah. Um, and he's holding a sword down, which is not accurate to the story. Excuse it is me. in that he beheaded Goliath. So he didn't kill Goliath with oh, a sword, okay, so but this he is did po- behead him. Oh, right. Because you said this is post-victory. Right, right. Okay. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> um, Donatello gets a pass. <laughs> no, no, no. But you're right. It makes total sense because one's the before, one's the after. Yeah. But this little man is a little man he's like a small young boy man he's yeah which david was a young character in that story he is young so that is an interesting take as well you compare uh donatello's david who looks like a young shepherd boy to michelangelo's david uh and the the proportions are very different the figure is very different and we can obviously we can discuss this a bunch there have been essays and a lot of historians writing about this but the goals they were trying to achieve i think were slightly different you know donatello again was going for that naturalistic form it is a callback and we'll talk about this more uh to the contrapposto antiquity romanesque statue stance michelangelo to your point though was fanatical about anatomy was devoted to the human form i will say donatello's david is like when you cast teenagers to play teenagers in TV. <laughs> and Michelangelo's David is like when you cast 30-year-olds to play teenagers on TV. The, the teen wolf effect? Yes. Hi, my name is 30-year-old David, and I am just a cool teen here on Vampire Diaries. How do you do, fellow kids? Yes. <laughs> so yeah, in con- so Michelangelo's David in contrast to Donatello's, Michelangelo's David is looking off towards the battle. As we talked about, his muscles are tense. He stands in that contrapposto stance first popularized by the Greeks. He holds the rock in his right hand and a sling pouch in the other. And I really like the way the academia, again, the museum that houses David, p- describes his stance. So the slingshot he carries over his shoulder is almost invisible, emphasizing that David's victory was one of cleverness, not sheer force. He transmits exceptional self-confidence and concentration both values of the thinking man considered perfection during the Renaissance, end quote. And interestingly, originally, the tree trunks and the sling were gilded when the statue was first created. Nuh-uh. Yeah. Okay, so if I'm remembering correctly, the tree trunk is or has become part of what is keeping this statue standing? Like the supporting the one leg? It is, correct. That's, that's why compositionally it was included was to support the weight of the statue. So it's so interesting to then highlight that with gold. Mm-hmm. I like it. I know. I wanted. I had. I had trouble finding more about it being gilded and why it's no longer gilded or when that was removed. I couldn't really find a lot of information on it. But the Victoria and Albert Museum did show the, a picture of David as he would have looked gilded, and it was mind-boggling. Very different. Gold is a notoriously soft metal. I could just imagine over 300 years outside the gold being like, I'm done now. Thank you. I'm good. I did my time. Let me go. (laughs) Uh, But so an interesting thing to note, as you called out, the proportions of the figure are off. 
So Michelangelo, as we talked about, was a master of anatomy. He studied cadavers to better understand the human form, which was revolutionary at the time and really like frowned upon. So he was so committed to learning the human form, he was going to do it anyway. So why is David's head and his right hand larger than proportionally appropriate? Remember, the statue was originally supposed to be viewed from 80 feet below. It was supposed to be up on the roof of the Duomo and seen from the ground. So from that view, the figure appears much more proportionally accurate. Because Michelangelo was always considering the viewer when he was creating his sculpture. Oh, that's so cool. Mm -hmm. And actually, in 2010, in November 2010, the city of Florence created a fiberglass copy of the statue and placed it up on the Duomo where it would have been if it had actually been installed where it was originally planned to be. And you can see from that perspective, it looks much more proportional. Oh, yeah. Although, really, whatever is going on with his head and his hand isn't really relevant. <laughs> it's really just a shot of his crotch from that angle. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's... Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong, but uh, it does the. It, it's so interesting to see it from that angle, and and you miss the. What I find so fascinating is that it was supposed to be viewed from eighty feet below on the ground, and still Michelangelo took such care to sculpt minuscule veins mm. in the hands and the feet, and micro expressions in the face. Just the the love and the dedication he had to the statue is just phenomenal i also think uh, ego is involved there and i don't necessarily even mean ego in a, an especially negative way but he was an amazingly talented artist i think mm -hmm. at some point he was just like i'm not gonna not do all these things absolutely and i i didn't save the quote but when i was researching i read a quote of him talking about how whatever he did he did to perfection. And he's yeah. like, if I ever become satisfied with work that is not my best possible work, like I'm no longer an artist. He was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. He was dedicated to art. So again, calling back to the anatomy and the perfectionism, there's actually a muscle missing in David's back. And there were computer measurements taken by some Florentine professors that show there's a hollow instead of a muscle on the right side of the back between the spine and the shoulder blade. But this wasn't a mistake. Like Michelangelo was aware of this. He said in one of his letters that the defect in the marble block made it impossible to reproduce the muscle. So even his quote-unquote anatomical mistakes were intentional because he was trying to work with the, again, absolutely terrible block of marble that he had to work with. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> So still, though, the battle for the statue was not over. David would still have to continue fighting. He would have more trials over the years to come. Upon installation in the Piazza della Signoria, the statue was vulnerable. It was open to the elements. It endured rain, wind, snow, sun, earthquakes, and all that nature had to contend with. People, especially the first year the statue was put up, would often throw rocks at it. In 1527, there were protesters rioting against the rule of the Medici family who gathered in the Piazza. And during that protest, a bench was thrown from a window, which actually broke David's left arm into three pieces. It was restored, but troubles didn't end there. Sam Anderson says again in his article, quote, In the 19th century, the statue's restorers tended to only make things worse. They used wax, which discolored the marble, and acid, which aided its surface. 
Before long, the David needed restoring from his restoration. A broken rain gutter on the Palazzo Vecchio poured torrents of water directly onto the statue, and concerned citizens began to agitate for him to be moved indoors. They built a protective wooden shed over him, isolating him in a bubble of safety. This brought the public life of David full circle. He was carved in a shed. He was hidden in a shed. End quote. I am always shocked by how frequently art restoration destroys art. It, it's unfortunately more common than people realize, especially before the advent of a lot of the materials that we have today that are archivist uh, and museum quality. Well, and it's also up to the skill of the restorer. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you see it, every couple of years, there's always an article where someone painted over a priceless painting and it looks like a child's play. <laughs> yeah. We, we all remember Potato Jesus. Oh, uh, my favorite Jesus. I know. Uh, if you ever are looking for an interesting art restoration YouTube channel, Baumgartner Restoration is a rabbit hole I've fallen down many a time where he is a painting uh, conservator and he talks about art conservation. And often he is having to undo or correct damages from previous restorations. I would cry. I'm not cut out for that. Me neither. It's a lot of <laughs> minuscule, like mundane, monotonous tasks. How many M words can I get to describe this? <laughs> mm. <laughs> so now that David is installed permanently in the academia, he's more protected, but he's still not completely safe, as we learned in 1991. So I'm going to quote from the New York Times article from September 15th, 1991, which explains... Quote, Michelangelo's David, arguably the world's most famous sculpture, was damaged in a Florence museum today when a man the police described as deranged broke part of his toe with a hammer, saying a 16th century Venetian painter's model ordered him to do so. So questionable word choice and depiction of mental health aside, the article goes on to explain that a man named Piero Canada snuck in a hammer and smashed the second toe of the right foot before being pulled away. What? Yeah. All of the pieces were able to be gathered and the statue was restored and David is now behind protective glass. Bummer! Yeah. 1991. Someone broke David's foot. And he's got such long little finger toes. (laughs) A lot of material to work with, I guess. (laughs) David is still not done fighting, though. He has one more battle to contend with. So cracks have actually been found in the statue's ankles. Researchers have found that if David tilts 15 degrees or more, the statue will fall. This is a problem because of the misalignment of the centers of gravity. So the center of gravity of the base doesn't align with the center of gravity of the body. So if the base is level, then the body is off balance, which puts pressures on David's ankles. So now this has been accounted for and the statue is upright and well-balanced. But for years before, especially when he was in the piazza, the statue was leaning. So it doesn't sound like much if he was leaning just to several degrees, but that compounds over years and years and years, especially when you have like six tons of weight bearing down on that one point. Hairline fractures have worked their way slowly through the stone. The right leg is worse than the left. And if the tilt increases, that pressure and stress is just going to move more and more. And it's a potential for the statue to break. Okay, so I have heard this anecdotally and maybe you know the answer, but maybe we'll just call it an anecdote. But uh, I heard that some um, 
people from the Getty, which is a museum out here in California, mm-hmm. were hired to go help work on the base of and supports for the David, the Statue of David, because we have so many earthquakes out here in California that they – and we also have uh, – the Getty has a, a collection of Greek and Roman statues mm-hmm. that they were – so practiced at dealing with protecting these statues that they were brought in to consult. So that makes sense. I didn't see anything about that specifically about the Getty, but I wouldn't be surprised because, again, the statue is well-documented, reviewed, and it's constantly monitored. But that is the major concern is earthquakes. Oh. (laughs) Because, to your point, the statue now is uh, monitored, it's upright, the cracks are stabilized, they're not spreading. But they're still there and that vulnerability still exists. So the big question is if the statue tilts, that's where there can be issues. What could cause the statue to tilt? Well, the ground moving. (laughs) So earthquakes are a big concern um, because Florence is near a fault line. There is a solution, though, which the Getty Museum does have in place for their statues, which are anti-seismic bases. Yes, that. (laughs) Yep. So that could protect David from catastrophe. In 2014, Italy's prime minister of culture promised that an anti-seismic base would be installed within the year. As far as I can tell, though, it has yet to be installed. No. Yeah. This is due in part to changes in leadership at the museum, bureaucratic roadblocks. There was a director who was in place in 2014 who was sort of like a lame duck director, couldn't get anything done. A new director came in. I was looking into it to see if she had had the base installed. Didn't seem like it, and it looks like she was let go a year or two ago. So I wasn't able to find any evidence that an anti-seismic base was put on David, to this point, at least. That's such a bummer. You know, when I hear about old artwork, part of me says, you know, at some point, everything has a lifespan. Mm -hmm. Everything that is created must end. But I, the you know, the other part of me is like, okay, but not this one, you know, yeah. like about any individual piece of art or like, okay, but not yet. Yeah. And I go back and forth between, you know, certain pieces of art. Uh, like I love Brancusi um, and mm-hmm. a lot of his pieces live outside and there's kind of discussion about that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm Most of Brancusi – well, pretty much the only Brancusi I'm familiar with is um, – I think it's called Flight. Uh, Bird in Flight. Bird in Flight, yes. <laughs> There's multiple versions of that sculpture and it changed my life. And I did an entire acting project based on Bird in Flight, having to play a character based on that. The big thing I know about it is that it was um, – it, it sparked a whole conversation about what is art because when it was imported, there were certain taxes put on importing art versus importing, you know, just like a piece of furniture or something. So when it was brought to the U.S. Uh, customs, they were like, well, this isn't art. You have to pay the more expensive tax rate. And he was like, no, this is art. Like, this is – I made this. This is art. And it became a whole discussion of, like, what is art? And it was because of taxes. That's so funny. Did you visit it when you went to the Met? Did you say hi? No, I didn't see it at the Met. I've seen the Philly uh, Art Museum has one permanently. Mm-hmm. So I've seen the the Philly one a couple times. The Met one was my one through college because I lived in New York. Yeah. And it's often closed off. Um, <gasps> I know. Anyway, sorry. The wrong sculptor. <laughs> I, I love So good, though. We only had like an hour and a half at the Met. So we blitzed through some of the ancient Greek and Roman sections, made our way to modern art, and then found Tracy's uh, Artemisia Gentileschi. Uh-huh. I love to blaze through the Met. If you live in New York, there's you can 
dinner student or something, you can yeah. pay like a quarter or whatever. There's something. Pay what you can, can. Yeah. Yeah. And I always used to roll up, give them a quarter, and they would get so mad. And then I'd spend like 30 minutes at the Met and then go on to my next thing. It's great. It was great. It's so beautiful. And there's so much you can see. Like, I feel like I would want to go and be like, all right, today's my modern art day. And I would just look at modern art. And like, today's my baroque day and i would just look at baroque art because you seeing it all at once there's so much and so much gets lost i did get to see some toulouse lautrec who is one of Aww. my favorites i was pointing out to tracy i'm like look he painted like on cardboard uh he's so it's just great i love him i want to put jamie wyeth and toulouse lautrec in a room with a bunch of cardboard and just be like good luck <laughs> good luck guys <laughs> have fun <laughs> Oh, the stuff they would create would be amazing. Sorry, this this is what Jamie and I hanging out looks like. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> we haven't even started on Rothko, which I actually pitched to Tracy potentially doing a Rothko episode with you. She's like, that's great. I think you and Rowan are the only ones who care that much about Rothko. It's hard to get people to care about Rothko. There's that great uh, play that was on Broadway, Red. That's why I care so much about Rothko, because I had to read that in college. Had to. I read that in college and fell in love with Rothko. I care about Rothko more as a character and the things that he did for art than I care about looking at any individual Rothko. Yeah. Like, I understand the significance. I'm happy to see them in a museum. I'm like, hello, Rothko, as I continue to walk by. Oh, I'm <laughs> I'm that... I I am such a hypocrite because there are some pieces like I stand in front of a rock film like you have to stand 12 inches away from it let it fill your vision don't think just feel the emotion I'm like that pretentious person in the museum with like everyone who walks by I'm like no this is how you experience a Rothko um, and I do feel like I love getting to stand in front of a Rothko and just really take it in but then I'll turn around the corner and there'll be like a side Twombly piece and I'm like I hate side Twombly he's the worst he's garbage just as like, I just heard my mother turn off on the podcast. <laughs> I just heard my mom say enough I'm of this. I'm so sorry. I just don't like Cy Twombly. I think he's so frustrating. When I look at his work, I just get frustrated, which is not fair because not like he's doing anything more or less impressive than like Pollock, who I like, and Rocco, who I like, and, you know. Name one more so we can have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles of modern art. I was going to say Barnett Newman, but I actually don't like his stuff. Which, again, there's no reason not to. <laughs> I just don't. Ellsworth Kelly. I like Ellsworth Kelly. Oh. Okay, so Twombly, Rothko, Kelly, and Pollock. Yeah. <laughs> the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Modern Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We ha Sorry, everyone. We have deviated. Okay, we're going back to David. Hot David. Back to David. So... The Friends of Florence is a nonprofit organization that continues to push for the anti-seismic base to be installed in this, under the Statue of David. They're a U.S. nonprofit organization who defines themselves as being supported by individuals from around the world who are dedicated to preserving and enhancing the cultural and historical integrity of the arts located in the city and region of Florence, Italy, and to increasing public understanding and appreciation through educational programs and events. They're currently supporting funding of the upkeep of the statue after sponsoring and documenting a restoration of the piece in 2004. But it does seem like David's fight must continue. So let's talk about Michelangelo. We've talked all about the statue of David, but who was the artist himself? Michelangelo de Lodovico Bonarotti Simoni was born in Florence in 1475. He studied first fresco under Ghirlandaio, then studied sculpture at the Medici Sculpture Garden. His first big commission was the Pieta, which was when he was 25. But even then, at that point in his life, he was still very well respected and very well paid for that commission. 
but money and decorum were never really that important to the artist, who was known for his gloomy and brooding demeanor. His biographer, Paolo Giavio, says his nature was so rough and uncouth that his domestic habits were incredibly squalid and deprived posterity of any pupils who might have followed him. <laughs> he was just like a like typical gloomy, brooding artist. He's a sad boy. He's a sad boy. He was a sad boy who had a lot of money. He's like, oh, money won't make me happy. It's just art. I wish that art patrons were still a thing to that extent. I know. Because I, A, would love to have a patron who's like, yes, go make this art for me. But also, if I had that kind of money, I would love to be a patron where I just right? pick an artist and I'm like, hello, little duck. You are my person and I pay for you so that you make art. I am blanking on her name. I'll see if I can find it at some point. But there is a female watercolor illustrator who does these like beautifully intricate, detailed illustrations. And she has a patron. She has someone in her corner who says, I will pay you sight unseen for every original work you create from now until the end of your life. I will pay you $10,000 for every painting or you know, whatever it is, for every painting you do. And she still gets to okay. sell the digital version, the rights. So if she wants to use it for a children's book, she can sell it for a children's book. And she still has a patron who'll buy the originals. The goal, the dream. Okay. Right? Yeah. It's so hard to see someone else living out your fantasy. If anyone wants the original digital file of these podcast episodes, they can be yours for the low, low price of $10,000. It's a steal, honestly. So I have heard so many times that uh -huh. Michelangelo must have been a gay man. So there has been some speculation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He often painted male figures, and he strove to depict the ideal of beauty, which at the time was exalted as the male form. So he used male models often, and is even suspected to have potentially used male models to pose for his female subjects. His women are often depicted with broad shoulders, strong arms, stocky frames, which, don't get me wrong, absolutely rad body type to have. But it does artistically conflict with the standards of the time of painting women with wide hips, slender frames, and delicate features. For example, see Botticelli and the birth of Venus. Right, exactly. It's not that women don't look like this. It's that at the time, the quote-unquote ideal woman, what we saw in so much art, was not this. Right. And I have heard so many stories or people speculating about him painting women to look more like men because he was attracted to men. But that doesn't... It's a potential interpretation, but again, like, Michelangelo was devoted to art. Right. And if he's following the ideals, the artistic ideals of the time, it tended to be more the male body, especially if you look back at, like, Roman and antiquity, that's what was exalted as the ideal form, was the male form. So how much of it is him following that versus his own preference or the two mingling? We can't really know. Yeah, correlation does not equal causation. Right. But I do imagine him being so insufferable, just so terrible that anyone mm -hmm. who could who would stick around, he'd be like, okay, like yeah. <laughs> you're attractive. This is this is no it. one is, yeah. no one will spend time with me. I almost feel like it's more like he didn't look up from his work long enough to even find anyone attractive. Like that's more the reading I get is that he was like, Hold on, I have to work. Um, Nobody bother me. I'm not looking up for my work to even notice if you're cute. There's also the option of 
you know, he's in the throes and someone is excited. And he's like, could you do that again? I just want to look at that muscle on your back um, and, and see how that moved. Michael Angel, this is the third time. <laughs> I would not be surprised. I mean, he was dedicated to understanding the human form and anatomy, which is evident in many of his subjects, which are often seen naked. But that nudity does call back to ancient Greek and Roman statues, which were often sculpted, exposed. Um, the mastery of art in antiquity to Renaissance artists was the ideal. It was an inspiration. I mean, Renaissance literally translates to rebirth and is indicative of the rediscovery of art and literature from antiquity. So it's not surprising that Michelangelo was pulling a lot of inspiration from those Greek and Roman statues, especially in his stance of the statue, the contrapposto pose, as well as his depiction of David nude. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to double back. Jamie has been providing me with so many wonderful pictures to look at. But the the example you have of the woman, I would not have thought that that was a woman at all. Like if I saw that from afar, it wouldn't occur to me. Mm-hmm. Again, based on what I know about the ideals, the traditional from the time, the figure – um, the, these will be on the Instagram. The figure is turning away from the viewer and kind of putting a, what looks like a big text up on the wall. But with that broad back and especially the outfit that does mm-hmm. not look like it is, is supporting any boobs. It Again, it, the ideal was very curvaceous women. So if you were painting a woman at the time for the Sistine Chapel, I as a viewer now would just expect to see boobs. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like that outfit is – containing any no and there's no the way that the hair is wrapped up on first glance makes me think more that it's all head wrapping and the person's hair is short or not there Mm -hmm. so again another like male ideal from the time right right it's he's it's not hard to see why people think he may have used male models for his figure his female figures i'm so glad you included that one in particular because I think I've always just assumed that that was a male figure, full stop. It's really interesting if you go through and look at pictures of the Sistine Chapel and start to notice, like, oh, wow, his figures are – they're really interesting. Also, no free foot pics, but all of these feet that he does are toe – little toe toe fingers. Like, yeah. they're all grabbing. <laughs> little monkey feet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cute little toes. So even despite Michelangelo's impeccable execution of his nude figures, they were still considered shocking at the time. And even to today, the statue of David has throughout history periodically sported leaves or other adornments to cover some of his more sensitive areas. The Victorian Albert Museum has a life-size reproduction of the statue of David made from a mold of the original statue. And Queen Victoria was so shocked when she saw it that she commissioned a fig leaf to, to adorn him. Get wrecked. (laughs) <laughs> I know. Uh, there have been a couple different iterations of leaves to cover David over the years, but now it has been restored to the artist's original intention. But some people do question if his decision to paint and sculpt so many male naked subjects is a sign of the artist's orientation. Others, however, look to Michelangelo's poems for signs of his affection. He is known to have written to a young nobleman named Tommaso de Cavalieri in his later years. And many suspect he may have fallen in love with him. The evidence that they look to is in a series of poems with somewhat erotic undertones that Michelangelo dedicated to the young noble. Quoting from the collector, 
quote, in some poems, Michelangelo even describes how he wants to be Cavalieri's clothing so he can wrap himself around his body or be his shoes and kiss his feet, imagery that implies romantic infatuation. Although the pair had a close friendship, history suggests they never had an actual romantic relationship, which may have been partly because of their age gap. Michelangelo was 57 and Cavalieri was only 23. Even so, Cavalieri may have been the model for some of Michelangelo's most famous artworks, including the image of Christ in his last judgment for the Sistine Chapel, which would have been the ultimate compliment during the Renaissance. Oh my god, romantic poetry is just peak. Right? It's just, like... He wrote sonnets. And then being someone's model for Jesus Christ? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Ugh. That is exactly the kind of over-the-top romance I want for them. And apparently Cavalieri was dedicated to Michelangelo until his death. Like, it was apparently like a very profound relationship. Whether it was romantic or not, we don't really know, but it does seem like there was a strong connection between the two. I'm just going to assume Michelangelo's poetry was middling or great because of the (laughs) way that he executes everything else. But, like, even someone writing bad poetry for you is still... Uh, yeah, I'm... Listen, I'm romanticizing this. Again, I'm sure this man was awful to be around. But <laughs> I I just love the old letters and getting to find old letters. I know. I didn't... So, candidly, I didn't read any of Michelangelo's poetry. So I was like, I'm already so jealous of his ability to sculpt and paint and draw and draft it's like i can't also be jealous of his poetry like i don't have that much space in my body to feel that much envy for michelangelo right and i also want to give credit to the muse i feel like the the muses are the unsung heroes of so much artwork uh like cavalieri just do your thing man like (laughs) go on inspiring i feel like it's like the best parts of dorian gray like (laughs) It was just oh. not maybe a good comparison, but I just think of Dorian Gray. He was the muse. And then things went very, very badly. But in the beginning part, which is about as far as I got when I read a picture of Dorian Gray, he was just a happy-go-lucky muse. Yes, I will say, perhaps, even though I shouldn't, that Dorian Gray is a book uh, most enjoyed in hindsight rather than <laughs> while you're reading it. <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely true. I like talking about Dorian Gray much more than I like reading Dorian Gray. I like Reeve Carney playing Dorian Gray more than I liked reading Dorian Gray. (laughs) So we may never know if Michelangelo was in love with Cavalieri or anyone else, but it does seem his true dedication and first love is to art. He was fanatical in his devotion to creation. He created all the way up until his death when he died at the age of 88, beloved and admired by the citizens of Italy. We are still in the modern age inspired and awed by his work. David's pose, a contradiction of tension and ease, continues to resonate with millions of viewers every year. His gaze, both full of strength and fear, reminds us, as Roosevelt once said, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. I feel like sitting here with you and getting to see the script and also hear you talking and what's written and what's not, it is so apparent that you and Tracy and I had the same badass English teachers. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We uh, we all learned from the best. So this is the thing I wrote. I wanted to capture what it felt like to know of Michelangelo during the time. Because again, he was famous and considered a celebrity in his day and age. People were so excited about his work. 
So I wanted to capture some of that feeling. So this is what I wrote. It is a inspired letter, somebody writing to their sister about what it's like to know and see Michelangelo. Dearest Madalena, I write to you in good health and high spirits. My apprenticeship to Ghirlandaio is going well, but I won't linger. Based upon your insistence and enthusiasm for more news, I won't torture you with pleasantries. I have seen more of the work of Il Divino. Michelangelo works tirelessly still on his masterpiece. I have rarely seen him pause not to eat or rest. I have heard he ties candles to his hat to be able to work at night. His work must be divinely inspired, for how else could he work so relentlessly? While Michelangelo fervently guards his work from prying eyes, I have had the privilege to view his creation while assisting him from time to time. The way the artist labors, dear sister, is unlike any I have seen before. He is not creating David so much as he is freeing the hero from the marble entombment. Michelangelo creates with a hammer and chisel, and it is a sight to behold. He swings in powerful, broad strokes, wielding his tools like a warrior striking a battle axe. And yet when he strikes the marble, he reveals the most delicate, precise forms. It is physical alchemy, the way he turns hard stone into soft flesh. Were his work not so clearly heavenly inspired, it would be hard not to see witchcraft in his infusion of breath into lifeless marble. He has begun to work in smaller chisels, refining his creation, and rafts litter his tool bench. Dust has settled on every nook and crevice, and his workshop bears the evidence of its feverish work. As his workspace becomes more disheveled, David comes more and more to life. Michelangelo has begun to smooth out his surface, and the marble is beginning to gleam. Dear Madalena, it is like the most inspired dance. Michelangelo moves with a wild precision, and David follows his steps with elegant concession. I hope you, Giovanni, and the little ones might return to Florence at the start of the new year. There are rumors that Michelangelo will be presenting his work to the public then. I have missed you all and would be honored to show you the work and, God and Michelangelo willing, to introduce you to the artist himself. I implore you to try to make this journey. For while we may not look upon the face of God directly, he shows himself to us and works through the hands of Il Divino. Your loving brother, Antonio. God and Michelangelo willing. <laughs> so Il Divino is actually Michelangelo's nickname during the day. It meant the divine one. No like, joke. During his age, people were like, this guy, this guy. Wow. Would he, do you know this, would he have issues with people trying to crowd and see what he was working on? Or was he actually afforded the privacy that he wanted? It's, so I didn't read anything about that. It seems like he was afforded the privacy because he had sort of like a workshop workspace that was secluded. I really love the way that you wrote this, A, because I love your writing, but <laughs> you just, your turn of phrase so clearly captures the way students of art love artists that they look up to to me like i can i can see that and it, mm -hmm. it's that like trying to be simple and calm but also so i'm so excited yes <laughs> i it's so hard to emphasize how much people were obsessed with him during his time like he really was like a celebrity during his age so i can't imagine seeing his work as it was produced did he really tie candles to his hat Mm -hmm. There's rumors that he absolutely tied candles to his hat to continue to work at night. Oh, God. He would, like, sleep in his studio. He would sleep in his clothes, in his boots. He would barely stop to eat. Like, he worked tirelessly on David. That would be terrifying, because what if your candle hat cast a shadow and you thought you were doing one thing and then 
you carved out a bunch of marble and that wasn't it anymore. It's like, I feel like I have done that where I paint in like really bad lighting. So I'm like, no, I can see. I'm fine. I'm good. And then I turn on the light and I'm like, oh, it's actually not good at all. Uh huh. Or when you're really close to something and then you zoom out and you, oh, yeah. no. Apparently, again, this was something that um, I saw one place. I, I didn't do too much digging to confirm it, but it sounds like he had a technique when he was sculpting where he made a small model of David in, um, I think it was wax, and then he filled it with water, and each day he would take some of the water out, and what he could see is what he would sculpt. So he would work in bits. Wow. So I heard that. I, I only saw that in one place. I didn't do digging to confirm it, but um, he was notoriously known for just like carving the figure out, like freeform carving. A lot of other artists would do – actually, that's where we get the term cartoon. Artists would draw really big, roughed-out shapes of their – sculpture and pin it one side to one marble and they draw it from the other angle and pin it to the other side of the marble and that's how they would rough out they would kind of carve out the missing pieces but that big drawing was called a cartoon which is where we get the term cartoon from i didn't know that that kind of doing it and especially michelangelo's way of doing it is just a level of genius that it is truly mind-boggling it is it really is he was phenomenal at what he did so because i i know my mom and i've i've gotten to be the recipient of a lot of her teachings she's always trying to get artists that she knows to upgrade their materials like mm-hmm. do this with archival quality inks work with materials that will allow your art to survive that mm-hmm. will also make your life easier and then to hear that michelangelo did what he did with the crummiest piece of stone yep and then to do it anyway like yeah. to to know that this piece of stone is flawed to the extent that it will affect the lifespan of your work and to do it anyway Mm -hmm. and this is not just some sketch (laughs) because they're really he had no room for error with the way the block was cut like david had to be standing that way he had to be looking off to the side there wasn't enough marble for him to be looking forward and to take all those limitations and create something so phenomenal with it so, Jamie, do you want to tell me something good? I would. So, my something good, we kind of talked about it a little bit. I have just loved DMing for this campaign for you guys. It has been so much fun. So, I have played D&D for years, uh, on and off. I DM'd once or twice, like little one-shots here and there. It just never quite worked out. And then I had a point in my life where there was a lull and I didn't have any campaigns going on. And I reached out and was like, hey, would you guys want to do a campaign? I've been watching a lot of Critical Role, Dimension 20, Damsels and Dice. And I was like, I am inspired. I want to play D&D. Do you guys want to play with me? And you guys all jumped in. You have the most interesting characters. You are the most fun to role play with. Um, you come up with these crazy scenarios. It has just been like a joy. And I get so excited thinking of ways to like, how can I tell stories with their characters and help them make their characters the way they want them to be and have the experiences they want and just the yes ending and the world. Yeah. Like, it has been so much fun. So it's made me fall in love with D&D again. And I have just loved playing with you guys. I'm so glad you invited me to join that campaign, even though I'm always like a head on a computer. Uh, because A, that's so cool. Not everyone would do that. And it is just such an inspiring campaign because everyone is just hanging out and having fun. 
So Mm -hmm. people make the bold, cool choices that folks can make when they know that everyone's just going to support them. Yeah. Or the dumb choices of like everyone using a crossbow badly for like eight rounds trying to kill one rat. Listen, we're very low levels. I was out of spell slots, (laughs) so was virtually useless. And we all, actually all of our spell slingers were out of spell slots. And so we Mm -hmm. just were shooting with a crossbow and could not roll high enough. No one could... And it ended up being our fighter doing all of the damage while mm-hmm. we just kept missing. I think if there, I think there have been something like ten kills in the campaign so far for the whole party, and like eight of them are our fighter. Uh, okay, so my character Elvira is just here for the vibe. <laughs> She's just here for the vibe. The best part about being in a campaign with Jamie is you make beautiful art of our characters <laughs> so much. The piece that you just sent with Elvira in her like fortune teller tent is exactly how I imagined it, like down to the lighting. You get me. I was so glad. That was so much fun when you started describing that. I was like, I have to draw this spooky lady in her spooky little fortune telling tent. Ah! Oh my gosh, that's the best campaign. Yeah. So what about you? Tell me what's uh, what's going on with you. Tell me you're something good. In two days, I'm going to see Hades Town. <gasps> Stop! Are you really? Yes, I oh am. I'm going with my friend Lexi, who is on Damsel's Dice and Everything Nice with me. She plays Rapunzel, um, but she is also a theater human, and I mm-hmm. am so excited. I've been listening to the music nonstop. And, you know, if anybody has listened uh, to past episodes, Spencer was talking about how he was going to go. He went and he went before me, of course. Mm-hmm. And I'm so jealous. Oh and my gosh. having done all the research on Orpheus and Eurydice now, I'm I'm enjoying the show, in a, the soundtrack, in a way that mm-hmm. I wasn't able to before because there's just even more Easter eggs. And I'm yeah. so ready. Oh, I am so jealous. It's going to be amazing. The first time I listened to the soundtrack, I actually didn't like it. And I'm glad that I was aware of why at the time. But I wasn't – it was playing in kind of the background. um, Mm -hmm. And I wasn't able to give it my full attention. And Mm -hmm. you know the first time you hear a soundtrack to a musical, you're like, what is happening? Let me listen to this. And so it kept annoying me because I would only catch parts and then not know what was going on. And I'm I'm just glad that I was like, oh, this is not the fault of the musical. This is the yeah. fault of me. <laughs> Played it again and actually just sat down and listened. I uh it's it's amazing. What's it's what amazing. is to say? Anyway, you are a goddess among mortals. I cannot emphasize enough to our listeners how much Tracy and I were stressed because she had COVID and things were mm-hmm. difficult and the schedule was a little spicy and jamie was just like hey i can bust out an entire episode on michelangelo i'm a professional i (laughs) just have this knowledge sitting in my noggin and she you're amazing oh thank you so much i'm so glad my um like six semesters of art history finally paid off uh, for something i love talking about art with you you are more knowledgeable than i am and every time i talk to you You give me the goods I want. You give me the weird little facts. (laughs) Jamie did a PowerPoint party once um, where she picked a painting for all of us at the party. And it was uh, probably 
the best PowerPoint that oh I've ever watched. Oh my gosh, thank you. So I forgot I did that one. Yeah, everyone who was there, I assigned them a painting and why it matched them and their personality. So good. Tracy, I assigned uh, Artemisia Gentileschi, which is where she got the inspiration for that episode, which was very flattering. I can't thank you enough. You're amazing. I had so much fun. This was great. I love getting to rant about art and talk about make. I have a captive audience that has to listen to me rant about art. Are you kidding? It's the dream. Except my mom who turned it off when you said you don't like Saitomboli. <laughs> Sorry, Carol. You can come back now. We're done talking about Saitomboli. <laughs> All right. Do you think if I start us off, you can assist me with the closing? I think I can do that. All right, everyone. We will see you soon. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Mm, or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Life is like a hurricane, dear Duckburg. Race cars, something, aeroplanes.